It's always an interesting transition to go from that beautiful moment with the, with the children to stand up here in the pulpit uh, as the voice of, supposedly the voice of scripture, the voice of this church, the voice of, uh, the, with the message that I'm supposed to give. It's a, it's a daunting, daunting transition. I think I'd rather be down there to tell you the truth. <laughs> Especially with today's passage. Originally, I was going to preach um, a heartfelt, comforting uh, sermon on the, the amazing power of God to bring us freedom and how much freedom really matters, freedom in the sense of the way we understand it, and how much it also costs. But, you know... Um, I even had Donna write the bulletin with that text uh, in mind, and it was printed on Tuesday, but on Wednesday night, um, I think either it was the voice of God or my own ego, I'm not not always sure, by the way, (coughs) that said to me, uh, don't bail out on this week's Genesis text from the 22nd chapter. You'll know why I probably felt like I was bailing out when I read it. And the voice was saying, go back to it, tackle it one more time. So here's the text, Genesis 22, 1 through 19. May God give us ears to hear this word. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, he said, here I am, my son. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb? for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. Then he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abram, Abram. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessings for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. I didn't realize it. Three, this is the third week, three weeks ago when I started preaching from the passages in Genesis about Abraham that I would end up doing a four-part series. In fact, I really did intend not to do this passage as I looked down the four weeks, but instead one from Galatians where Paul talks about freedom in Christ. I didn't want to do this passage because obviously it's Daunting. The first week I preached is about, you know, Sarah showing up behind the tent when three strangers come and visit Abraham, and they, those visitors tell Abraham, even though he's like pushing 90, that she's finally going to get pregnant and have a child. And Sarah laughed, and apparently God laughed. And with the news of that, they were told that they should name the child that Sarah would have, I, have his name Isaac, which means he laughed. And so, uh, Because of that hospitality, they got the news and the name of Sarah's child to come within the year. Last week, when Isaac finally gets born, it ends up no laughing matter because at first Sarah thought she couldn't get pregnant, so she sent Hagar, her her maidservant, in to Abraham to be her surrogate for the child. She became pregnant, gave birth to Ishmael. And then when Sarah had Isaac, she saw Agar and Ishmael as a threat and ordered Abraham to ban them, to send them out into the desert where they would surely die. And Abraham obeyed. While out there near death, An angel of the Lord comes to them and shows them where water is and then offers Hagar and Ishmael the same same promise that he had offered Abraham, and that is that you will be the father of a mighty nation, a great nation on your own. And that is 
through that story. That is the Bible's etymology of where the Arabs came from, through Egypt, through the father Ishmael. And I said, too, that they, too, were children of Abraham, and we share the same forefather together, Jews, Christians, and Muslims. But today's passage, I changed my mind to preach it because I dislike it so much. And I wanted one last stab at it. I wanted to find a loophole. Like, maybe Abraham didn't hear God right. I mean, he is old and he has hearing problems, so maybe like a bad cell phone connection, he just misheard or misinterpreted that the conversation really went something like, Abraham, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah and find there a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I will show you. But he got lost in translation and he heard God say, take your son and turn him into the burnt offering. But then this interpretation makes the passage just as bad, if not worse. It means that Abraham, the father of our faith, Bible's example of what a father should be, who was willing to break out of the predominant pagan culture that believed in the gods of nature, the sun gods, the moon gods, the fertility gods, who believed in the gods of nature that demanded a burnt offering and blood sacrifice, he was willing to break out of that culture to leave his father's house and go off to a land that God would show him because he had chosen instead of the pagan gods to follow this one God, the, the God of Yahweh. And he started the whole movement of monotheism that we Jews, Christians, and Muslims claim to follow today. And he even, walked, he even talked God off the ledge in the passage before this when God is so mad at Sodom and Gomorrah for being so corrupt that he wants to blow them into bits. And Abraham says, you know, if there are 15 righteous people there, will you do it? No, God says. If there are 10, will you do it? No. If there are five, will you do it? He literally talks God off the edge not to do it until in the end it was clear there weren't any righteous people left in Sodom and Gomorrah, but that Abraham argued with God for that, but did not argue with God for this, I don't get it. Or option two, maybe the scribe who wrote down the story to begin with got it wrong. I mean, there are all kinds of stories about scribal errors. There are over 165,000 different variations in the New Testament alone thought to be many scribal errors. Maybe that's what it was. It wasn't God who was testing Abraham. Maybe it was Abraham who was testing God. Would God intervene and provide a ram for the burnt offering or not? And Abraham was willing to bet his son on it. Where that leaves Isaac, really? Where that leaves Isaac is completely traumatized as his father holds a knife over his throat? Nope, story doesn't work either. No matter where we come from, which angle we take, even the great Soren Kierkegaard, the existentialist theologian and the 
in the 19th century wrote a book called Fear and Trembling with nine different interpretations and variations on what this story means. And after he finished, he said, I still don't get it. Jew or Christian, scholar or just reader, there is no good explanation for God telling Abraham to take his long-awaited son Isaac up to Moriah and to test him up until the last second. Rembrandt painted this story with Abraham's left hand covering Isaac, who's laid out sort of in his lap, but on, on the altar itself, his hand covering Isaac's uh, eyes, pulling his head back at the same time to reveal his throat as Abraham's right hand is about to slice his neck. That's how you make a sacrifice. You bleed him from the neck and the, the knife is in midair having dropped it right before it happened because the angel called out and said, stop. And even still, I don't think Rembrandt could capture the horror of what this was all about, even in that painting. So can I? Last time I preached this passage, as I remember, was 1992. At least it's the only document manuscript I could find. Five years out of seminary, and I'm smart enough and wise enough and stupid enough to think I could handle it. It was my ego speaking, I'm pretty sure now, not God. Reminds me of that Fred Craddock story. You're listening to Fred Craddock stories in Sunday school this, this summer. It was his first class in preaching, and Fred allowed that every student for their little five-minute homily could pick out whatever passage in the Bible they wanted to preach from. One young student walked up and said, I want to preach from Genesis 22, the story I just read. Fred said, you know, even Martin Luther said that this text is too big, I can't preach it. And then he said, um, you sure you want to preach this passage? Oh yeah, student said, oh yeah, I like the story and I want to preach it. Okay, said Fred, but I think you will find this is a mountain too high to climb. I can do it, he said, okay. When the student stood up to preach, he needed a story as an analogy to Abraham raising the knife over his son, confident that God will provide. So he said in his analogy, there are a lot of sacrifices that we make if we believe in God and, and want to serve God. I know when I came to seminary here, seminary here I arrived in August and in, in order to get settled, but my apartment wasn't quite ready, so they moved me uh, to a temporary housing. It wasn't very nice, it's kind of dirty, and besides that, it didn't have any air conditioning. There I was in August in Atlanta without air conditioning. Yep, Fred said, you certainly nailed the power of this sacrifice. <laughs> And here I am, 30 years later, falling into the same trap, thinking I can handle it. Well, it is a lectionary text. 
And it does follow the first two sermons and sets up the fourth one. Yeah, I can do it. Actually, the difference between doing it now and doing it in 1992 is I'm, I'm a little more humble and a little more sure and as well as uncertain about stuff, especially this text. About this text, when it comes to God and the Bible, I can't fully understand. So how full of love and joy and hope one minute and terror, loss, and grief the next, not only in this story, but in life. How, how suffering and hardship and violence, oh, the violence is so much a part of life. About how innocent people sometimes end up being the victims and evil people the victors. About infants who die too young and evil adults not young enough about political and religious corruption, about the dregs of society while being the most godly, and the Bible so full of it all, the life, the death, the joy, the suffering, the questions asked but don't go answered always. The Bible refusing to answer the one question that we all ask, and that is, if God is God, how can God be good? And if God is good, how can God be God? Take the even or the odd, said the author some years ago. It's the question, why? Yes, sometimes God seems arbitrary or absent or cruel or capricious or indefensible. Why did he choose Cain's offering and not Abel's? Why bad things happen? We do not know. We do not know. I've come to find some peace in believing that God being God knows but God chooses not to tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the Lord reminds me that I am not God. God is. But even still, the Bible gives us more than we realize. Because in some sense, I think it is a biological and theological and historical and emotional and eschatological and every logical possibility you can say. It is a story narrative with a process of God's revealing God's self to us over time in a way that that revelation becomes more and more complex. It's the story of God's revelation to us through history. And I gotta say, it feels evolutionally like a movement into a new place as history goes by. Maybe it is that God chooses only to give us as much as the particular culture can, can handle at the time. For instance, this story written in Genesis is struggling with the whole issue of blood sacrifice because that was the culture in which Abraham grew up. Everybody in those days believed in 
the pagan gods of the sun and the moon and the stars and fertility gods and the way that you appease the gods, the way you care for the gods, the way you get paid back by the gods, the way you make them happy is by making blood sacrifices to them. And as you read the Bible from start to finish, you find that God continues to reveal that he is not that kind of God that demands a blood sacrifice. But he, but he plays it out to begin with because that's the only culture they knew. It took a while for this to come clear. When the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, there was a whole book, Leviticus, the third book of the Torah, supposedly written for the Hebrew people who wandered in the wilderness to give them the laws of how to make sacrificial offerings. And for them, there were five. There was a burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. Maybe because they needed them like a pacifier. I don't know. And the role of performing these offerings, of course, came to the job of the priests. When after several centuries in the wilderness, the tent of offering grew to be the temple of the offering in Israel. By the way, Moriah is thought to be Israel, uh, Jerusalem, although they don't really know where it is. Legend has it that Moriah is Jerusalem, and so it makes sense they build the priest where the whole, I mean the temple, where the whole role of the temple is to enable the priest to make all of these five offerings to God for the people, offerings of lambs and pigeons. In our story this morning, it says that God told Abraham to take his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah and he would provide. And God did provide, but Abraham didn't believe it, really. He just lied to his son Isaac and to his servants. And I think the reason this story exists for me and nobody else in my world, I think, would agree with this and call me a heretic but I think the reason for me this story exists more than any other is to begin the process to show us how absurd making these blood and guilt offerings up are to the kingdom of God. It begins the process for us to call these kinds of blood offerings into question. And then the Bible begins in the process sort of evolutionally to move toward that so that Later, the prophets come up. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obedience to the Lord's command? Surely, obedience is better than sacrifice, Samuel says. And Amos, if you offer me burnt offerings or your meal offerings, I will not accept them, God said. I will pay no heed to your gifts or fatlings. But let justice well up like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And Hosea, I desire goodness, not sacrifice, obedience to God rather than burnt offerings. And the strongest of all of them from Isaiah, God says, what need have I of your sacrifices? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, Isaiah writes. 
These prophets were adamantly clear that they were against the idea of having to make a sacrifice or offering to God in order to receive God's kindness. They even built a temple around it and a whole liturgical priesthood to make it work. In the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt, Jeremiah is saying, I did not speak to your fathers or command them concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices, but this command I gave, obey my voice and I will be your God. The point I'm making is that even at the beginning, as far back as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is showing us, even in this sacrificial story of Isaac, how tragically absurd thinking we can make an offer to God that will appease God and get his favor. God does not demand a blood sacrifice or a price to be paid in order to forgive our sins. Did you get that? God does not demand that a price be paid in order to get our sins relieved and forgiven. But we've turned this whole thing upside down, of course, because the priesthood, the institutions, just like the temple, benefit from saying, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins that we will not receive God's love and forgiveness unless we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that God's wrath must be paid back because God is just, and the only way that that wrath can be paid back was not by our giving ourselves over to God, but only by His Son Jesus paying it because the price is so high, too high for us to pay. That's the God of the pagans who demands a cost and price be paid Friends, do not believe it. Jesus died not to appease God, but to appease us. Because we're the ones who live in a quid pro quo world. We're the ones who believe that for, every, for everything there is a price to pay. Who believe that we have to work our way into someone's favor. We're the ones who demand that some price be paid so that we will know. And that's the point of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Not for God to forgive us, but for we ourselves to finally come to understand that God loves us no matter what, even when we crucify his son. I think there's a process going on here that gets us to this point from Genesis to Revelation. God makes the sacrifice. We benefit. It's called grace. If this doesn't change everything in the way that we deal with those who've hurt us, who we think needs, need to apologize to us or pay us back. And so if this doesn't change that, then we don't understand the cost of Jesus and God 
in washing away all of this balance-keeping need to pay back.